Welcome to the Well Studying Podcast. This is episode 248. Today is September 12th, 2017. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I want to talk about a subject that's very much in the news. I've heard from many of you that have heard this information. You're trying to process it and you wonder if this is an investment opportunity. And the topic of the day is the death of the internal combustion engine. Over recent days and recent weeks, there's been a lot of publicity, a lot of news about countries and governments that have either outright set up legislation that bans the future production of internal combustion engines. And the goal here is over the coming decades to either totally reduce or very much eliminate these type of engines. What I want to talk about today is not the technical nature of it, the viability of the technology, or even the efficacy of how well it would work in terms of either providing transportation or in reducing pollutants and emissions in comparison to, say, comparative technologies. That's not the purpose of the Well Studying Podcast. Our emphasis here is all about building our own personal wealth. And so I'm approaching this from whether it is a good investment idea, not whether it's good to the environment or the economy or anything like that. For those of you that aren't aware what's going on, let me give you just a real high-level rundown of what the legislative agenda is from many countries out there. Norway has been the leader in this. They currently have about 40% of their cars that are being sold. Not 40% of the cars that are on the road, but 40% of the cars that are being currently sold in Norway are electric vehicles or some type of a hybrid. Incidentally, most of these countries that are talking about phasing out the internal combustion engine are not excluding hybrid engines. So in Norway, you got about 40% of new cars being sold are either electric, which means they're totally plug-in, you plug them in, you charge them up and you drive them, or they're hybrids, something similar to what many of us know as a Prius, where it has an internal combustion engine on board that's basically just a generator, and that powers the electric motor that turns the wheels and runs the transmission of the car. The government of Norway has set a goal that by 2025, only zero emission vehicles will be sold in their country. So you're looking at, you know, less than eight years from now, they do not want any vehicles emitting emissions that fit in the category of, of a passenger vehicle, like a van or a car. Other countries are following suit, particularly those in Europe. Britain has a plan to phase out gas and diesel engines by 2040. And then by 2050, they want to have zero emissions on the road as well. France has set a very similar goal. Germany hasn't specifically put out a date and a timeline with any type of numbers, but you got to remember that their Prime Minister, Angela Merkel, is running for re-election this fall, and she's obviously not going to say anything political that is going to alienate the millions of Germans that work either directly in the automobile industry or ancillary suppliers and things. So they're still treading lightly there. She, right now, is a shoe-in to win election. In previous years, Merkel has been behind the emphasis from the German government to phase out things like nuclear energy. So I would suspect that if she does get reelected, it's highly likely that Germany will be following in the footsteps of Britain and France and these other Norwegian countries to phase out the internal combustion engine. And this is not just in Europe or developed economies. India and China have also both set goals. In India, it's been a little less formalized. They've said by the year 2030, they want all their new vehicles to be powered by electricity, but they really haven't, as far as I know, put a real legislative push behind that. It's more of just a targeted goal for now. 
We're seeing similar legislation talked about in China. And this is interesting for China because China is not only the world's largest car market, but China is also a dominant market for electric cars. I think uh, last year they accounted for something like 40% of electric cars sold globally were sold into China. The push to phase out internal combustion engines is not limited to Europe or Asia. It's also a very active movement here in the United States. There are something like, I don't know, eight or ten states that currently have either similar legislation or are proposing legislation that would be similar to what we're seeing in Great Britain or Germany or France, where they're talking about a phase-out that starts to take effect by 2030 and then a total phase-out into 2040 or 2050. Now, we're talking a lot of years into the future, and that's what I want to emphasize for those of you that are looking for investment opportunities. And I want to really caution you to be careful when you invest based on what you read in the headlines for a technology that is not yet invented or for a legislative process that hasn't totally banned something. When I was in the corporate world, and I may use a couple examples of this in today's episode because I spent 25-odd years or so in the corporate world in industrial markets, and I worked for or worked with many companies that were basing new products or their supply channels, things like that, based on what they thought was going to be pending legislation, and some of these things never panned out. For example, I remember polyvinyl chloride. That was an industrial component of plastic. I've been out of it for a long time, so I don't know what the status is now. But for about 20 years, I heard every year that that was going to be banned in Europe. And so companies kept looking for alternative sources or different types of products. And every year, year in, year out, companies kept producing more PVC. So just because something is proposed to be a banned product or it might be banned or it might be phased out, it doesn't really mean it's going to occur. As a side note, just think about the war on drugs. We can't keep drugs out of prison, and yet they're illegal. So, again, just something to think about before you make investment decisions. As I talk to people, the big investment opportunities that I hear people talking about, and I'm not saying these are investment opportunities, I'm just repeating what I'm hearing people talking about. One is with investing in electric vehicle manufacturers, so somebody like a Tesla or somebody like a Volvo, which has just recently announced that by 2019, all of their produced vehicles will either be electric or hybrids. So should you jump on the bandwagon and buy in a Volvo because they're going to have a head start? Or should you invest in Tesla because they've already been a leader in this area? Or should you invest in Toyota because they've been very successful with the Prius? Or should you invest in BMW or Mercedes because they say that they're really going to be coming on strong with electric vehicles? Well, for me personally, I would stay away from investing in any car companies right now. And I've been saying this for quite some time. Many people have been asking me, why aren't I investing in a company like Ford, which really fits into my overall philosophy where I have a certain portion of my portfolio focused on value, kind of dogs of the Dow stocks. And Ford Motor Company is paying a really high dividend right now. They've been very out of favored. Their stock has been down for quite a while. That would seem like a natural to invest in for a company that can turn themselves around. They're talking about more electronic vehicles, doing autonomous vehicle partnerships, things of that nature. Well, I've just avoided Ford and all the other car companies for exactly that reason that I don't know whose technology is going to prevail. You know, a decade ago, we never heard of Tesla, the car company, because it didn't exist. 
Just a couple years ago, it was questionable whether Volvo was even going to be viable. You know, they had sold to the Chinese. Their sales in the U.S. and globally had been declining. And now all of a sudden, they're making this big push into electric and hybrids. So is that going to reinvigorate Volvo or not? I don't know. I mean, think of this cell phone technology. We're just coming up on the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. Ten years ago, it was not a slam dunk that the iPhone would be the dominant smartphone. In fact, I think most people, definitely in the corporate world, would have been highly betting on a company you don't even hear of anymore, and that's BlackBerry. There's probably a lot of young people today that have, they don't even know what a BlackBerry is. They think it's a fruit. But trust me, ten years ago, people would have bet their fortunes that BlackBerry would be a viable smartphone manufacturer today. Nokia is another example. So I would caution you to be very careful investing in car manufacturers because this is going to be a very fluid, very changing environment. The other area that people are really gravitating to from an investment standpoint is in battery technology and in the raw materials that go into batteries. For example, you know, trying to invest in lithium and things of that nature. Now, I do think that's a good idea, but it's also a very fragmented market, and it's hard to sift through all the hype as to who really has access to the right raw materials. And again, with the shifting sands of technology, knowing exactly what that future raw material is going to be. Will it be lithium? Well, probably, but it might be something else. And even with the lithium usage that's occurred over the last just five years alone, the efficiencies have gotten so much better that they use less lithium per battery. So do you want to look at some mining stocks for things like lithium and rare earth type materials? Yeah, you know, I think that that could be a speculative part of your portfolio. Well, what about taking the other side of the trade? What about shorting things like oil? You know, a lot of people have contacted me lately because I've said that I'm looking for a buy-in point to get into the energy and specifically oil sector, things like maybe ExxonMobil. And people have said, you know, John, what are you, crazy? You know, just in a few years, oil is going to be worthless. No one's going to use it. Well, I got to tell you, I'm real skeptical about that. And if for no other reason, I'm skeptical because many of the people that today are telling you that oil is going to be worthless in the near future were the same people that a decade ago were telling you that we were at peak oil, that the world was about to run out of oil reserves, and that would have to go off of an oil-based economy because the price of oil was going to skyrocket to infinity. Those people were wrong then, and I got a feeling that they're wrong now. And it really comes down to simple economics on the oil front. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to use less oil or that the overall growth rate of oil usage may slow down. In fact, I think that's the case. I don't think that we're going to be using less oil globally. I think the growth rate of oil and other fossil fuel-based resources will decline. Okay, not the total usage, but the growth in usage. And that makes sense because as economies grow and mature, they become more efficient with their use of raw materials. Think of it this way. A country like Saudi Arabia, they are awash in oil, and it's really their only export or their only lifeline to an economy. Now, they're trying to change that, but for now and for the last 70, 80 years, that's the way it's been. I got a feeling it's going to be that way into the future. So let's say that Denmark and Sweden and France and maybe Norway all decide to go emission-free on passenger vehicles. So we're not necessarily talking about big 18-wheelers or ships or airplanes at this point. 
But obviously, passenger vehicles use a lot of energy in the form of petroleum right now, whether it's diesel or gasoline. So if that usage is cut back by some of these nations, it will create a lower demand for oil. But is Saudi Arabia just going to roll over and quit pumping oil because, say, Norway doesn't buy any more from them? Well, no, not at all. Saudi Arabia is going to keep looking for new markets where oil can be used. Or they're just going to lower the price of the existing oil so that it's sold for more applications. And you have to remember, this is that price demand and the substitution of the market. You know, what, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand. And what economists talk about unintended consequences. Perhaps what these governments might find is when they cut back on one form of oil usage, for example, in cars and in combustible engines, maybe societies will start using oil for other things like heating their home. Right now, a lot of people use natural gas. Natural gas is cheap. Natural gas is very environmentally friendly. It does produce CO2, but it doesn't produce many noxious emissions. And so natural gas is a major way here in the United States that we heat our homes. But there are many places around the world that don't have access to natural gas, and so they use heating oil. Even here in the United States, in the Northeast, there are many homes, many communities that use heating oil. If you drastically reduce the demand for petroleum-based products and internal combustion engines for transportation, maybe new markets will show up where people will want to burn oil directly to heat their homes or to heat their buildings or perhaps to run their own home generators to live off-grid and very affordably produce electricity in some type of a hybrid structure where they have solar panels for the days that it's sunny and wind turbines for the days when it's windy and a backup generator that either runs off of natural gas or even diesel or gasoline to fill in for when the renewables aren't working. The key point I want to emphasize here is that technology keeps changing and there is this invisible hand of the economy. And just because governments are talking about banning the internal combustion engine in 15 or 20 or 30 years, that does not mean that oil is going to go to zero tomorrow. In fact, I really believe that we're going to see technology merge all of these type applications and we're much more likely to see hybrid approaches taking place. Now, if you live in Paris or if you live in Beijing or some city that's very densely populated and where people are commuting very short distances, it may make total 100% sense to switch to a plug-in electric engine for personal transportation. The battery technology doesn't have to be that complicated. You're never that far from an electrical outlet where you can plug into the wall and recharge. And it would be really good for cutting down emissions in these densely populated, very polluted cities. That model may not only work in densely populated cities like San Francisco or New York. It may even work for entire countries that are not necessarily overpopulated, but where the majority of the population lives in a very confined area. For example, Norway. And that's why Norway is a country that has had so much success with the sale of new electric vehicles. It also is a country that is highly subsidizing those vehicles, not only with actual supplements for purchasing the vehicle, but allowing those vehicles to use special lanes on the highway so they can avoid traffic, free recharges in certain parts of the city, reduction in import fees and all kinds of tariffs. I mean, they have highly, highly, highly subsidized electric cars. And so that's why, you know, 40, 50% of the new cars being sold are electric. That may make sense in Norway. It's a country of less than 6 million people. 
but what works in Norway or in Manhattan or in Beijing may not work very well in Nigeria or Nicaragua or Nebraska. And that's the key point I want to point out here is that you will hear a lot of hype in the media saying, you know, look at Norway, look at what Norway's doing. We're all going to go the path of Norway in the next 15 or 20 years. Maybe, maybe not. If you go back more than a decade ago, you heard the same logic to justify the use of wind energy. Now, I'm going to relate back to my time in corporate America because a decade or so ago, I was heavily involved in carbon fiber projects to support wind energy. And I traveled all around the world looking for clients and customers and attending conferences. And I can tell you there was a big emphasis. And one of the countries that was really held up as the poster child for wind energy was Denmark. The same way that Norway is being held up as the model for electric cars today. In wind energy, Denmark was being promoted as the example and the way for the future for wind turbine energy because it was being highly subsidized by their government. It made sense given the wind flow that they had both on and offshore and the acceptance of the people and a lack of other energy type reserves that were available to them as a society. So wind energy seemed to fit very well. And indeed, if you look at the statistics today, I think something close to or approaching 50% of electrical energy is generated from wind energy. But that has not caught on in the rest of the world the way it has in Denmark. Now, hold on. I'm not saying that wind energy isn't viable in other places and that there haven't been a lot of investments made and that the percentage of electricity made by wind energy hasn't gone up over the last decade. It has. We have increasing amounts of capacity from wind energy every year. But, and this is a big but, it's nowhere near the penetration of Denmark. Not on a global basis, not on individual country basis. You know, here in the United States, and let me preface this by saying I'm getting my data directly from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. It's directly off their .gov website. And what I'm reading on the EIA's website is that wind energy in 2016 accounted for less than 6% of electricity generated in the United States. Less than 6%. And the installed base of new wind power is going down, not up. And you may be saying, well, hey, that's because solar panels have come down so much in price and so much more emphasis is going over to solar power. Maybe, but again, according to the EIA's website, 2016 electrical generation in the United States from solar panels was about 1%. But I digress. Okay, so why does Denmark use 45 or near 50% of their electrical capacity from wind energy and the United States less than 6 well, it has to do with geography and terrain and amount of wind availability and the concentration of their population. There's a huge amount of wind energy produced in the state of Texas because it makes sense. Other states like Wyoming where it's very windy. But overall, as a continent, the United States does not have the geographic, the geological, and the weather patterns to support a 50% penetration of electrical generation from wind energy the way Denmark does. Now, I'm drawing some analogies here, but I suspect that even though today, while 40% of Norway's new vehicles are electric vehicles, we can't transpose that to the United States and say, hey, in four or five or seven years, 50% or more of vehicles in the United States are going to be run on electricity versus gasoline or diesel. I just don't think the two are comparable. Just like Denmark's wind capacity generation is different than the overall United States wind capacity generation. 
I think our market for electrical vehicles in the near future is going to be much different than Norway's. Am I totally downplaying electric engines for cars? No, not at all. I think they're amazing. I think that they'd make total sense, particularly for an advanced society. Our ancestors used to ride around on horses. Then we invented cars. Those cars ran on gasoline. Someday the vehicles in the future, whether they be cars or whatever they are, they will most likely probably run on electricity because it's not only cleaner, it's also much more efficient. An electrical engine has, you know, an order of a magnitude less moving parts than an internal combustion engine. So it only makes sense that we're going to gravitate to that. But what I want to caution people that want to jump into this market from an investment standpoint is that you have to be really careful that the hype you're hearing from the media doesn't mean that those profits and those markets are going to materialize tomorrow. I believe it will most likely take years and multiple decades to transform itself. And when it does, I also believe a hybrid model will exist. A hybrid model makes sense where you have a lot of the main work being done by the electrical motor because it has less moving parts, it's more reliable, it can be controlled in a much more precise manner. Just think of the way an old wind-up clock would work versus the way a solid-state quartz watch would work. There's less moving parts, it's more reliable, it tells time better. So that will prevail in things that need to be operated by small motors. But at the same time, things like oil and natural gas are not going away. Their price has been coming down, and I expect it to be flat for quite a long time because the reserves are so abundant, and people will use that energy. So I think rather than looking at just a total phase out of the internal combustion engine, it's much more likely that we're going to see a blending of the technologies and a lot of hybrids coming out. Go look at a big cruise ship. The last time I took a cruise, the ship was propelled by four main engines, two in the bow, two in the stern. They could rotate 360 degrees independent of each other. So a captain of a ship today can with exact precision move that ship around because he's independently powering and turning those propellers. And they're run 100% by electricity. But do you know how that energy is produced? There are two big, humongous internal combustion diesel engines on that ship that power two generators. Those two big diesel engines and generators work individually, but they're there as part of a redundant system in case one goes down, the other one can operate. All the electricity on that ship is powered from that diesel engine and that generator. And then that electricity is used to drive all the electronics, all the computers, all the lighting, all the air conditioning, all the electrical needs for the ship, including the energy to power those four propellers that move the ship. It's a hybrid system. And I think we're going to see more of it. So just to sum things up here, I wouldn't jump on the bandwagon and read the headlines and rush out and start investing in certain types of minerals that are going to go into batteries because we don't know what the battery technology is going to be. Neither would I jump into any of these car companies right away because I see a lot of disruption, not only in the car companies, but also in the supply chains. Remember this, the electric engine has a whole lot less moving parts than an internal combustion engine. Less parts means less manufacturing. It means less employment. So there's going to be a lot of shakeups up and down the supply chain. I also wouldn't run out and short petroleum because I don't think the price of oil is going to zero anytime soon. 
as always, I would approach this with caution and with wisdom, and I would take a little here and a little there and break up my investment portfolio across a wide array of different technologies. And incidentally, that's exactly what I'm doing. Look at my existing portfolio of some of the dogs of the Dow that I'm invested in. Do you think that a company like GE may not have at least one little tentacle likely to be benefited from a hybrid system of transportation and other types of technologies that are currently dominated specifically by current use of internal combustion engines? Well, I think it's likely, and it's not the only reason, but it is one of the many reasons that I chose to invest in General Electric. Now, should you run out and buy General Electric? That's a choice you have to make on your own, and I would only encourage you to do so if you have the ability to add it to your portfolio in a small portioned position, certainly no more than 5 or 10%. What I discussed today is the rationale and the framework that I use and that I think through as I look at new and emerging technologies and as I look at different places to invest my money and what stocks or what sectors of the economy or what areas of the world I should put my investment portfolio in. I do a very thorough analysis and give examples and talk about these rationales in my book, The Robots Are Coming. That book is not written about gloom and doom that the robots are going to come and steal everybody's jobs. It was written as a human survival guide for profiting in the age of automation. And a lot of that profiting has to do with the fourth section of that book, which is where I cover things to think about when you're assessing new technologies. Things you want to buy long on, things that you want to buy short, how to portion your portfolios to minimize and mitigate risk. It's all in the book. The robots are coming. It's a good read, and as I've said so before, it's the best book I've ever written.